Welcome to the Ikario podcast. In today's episode, you'll be listening into a conversation I had with TJ Power, a neuroscientist and founder of the company The Digital Mind. TJ specializes in mental health and he helps organizations and individuals find ways to better cope with the unfortunate mental health side effects that our increasingly fast-paced and digital world brings with it. In this conversation, you'll discover the model TJ uses that shows how there are four key hormones that drive human behavior and human urges and desires, and how many of the aspects of the modern world that we live in kind of hijack our reward system. And we go into a lot of practical detail on how to deal with this. You'll also discover the habits that he has built for himself that allow him to have better mental health outcomes than most people and cope with all this information overwhelm and technology, but without having to eschew these things entirely, right? You don't have to retreat into a cave. You can add a little bit of caveman, a little bit of hunter-gatherer into your life, experience great health benefits, and still be a user and lover of technology, as he himself is as well. As you'll see, this conversation is full of fascinating information as well as highly practical advice. I'm sure you'll find this immensely valuable and you can learn more about where to find TJ and how to learn more from him in the episode description. And with that, let's jump straight into the conversation. Okay, TJ, great to have you here. Really excited to have this conversation. Let's get started with, as a in your work, right? You're a neuroscientist, you have your own company. And to start this conversation, I think a good starting point is what is the problem that you are addressing or working on with your business? Yeah, that's a good question. Thanks for having me here. And I would say the main problem is humans are just living completely misaligned to our biological design to how like our whole chemistry and how our whole body wants us to operate and I would say that's the problem and I'm trying to realign the way in which people structure and behave during their days and yeah with the intention to get towards a lot better mental health right so it's yeah like the starting point is human suffering really Mm -hmm. right and and we have and can you tell me a little bit like what's your perspective on that because I feel like my impression is like everybody knows, oh yeah, there's some mental health crisis or something, right? You, you I don't know, some vague headlines or whatever, teens are more miserable and everyone's anxious and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you have deeper insights into this. So what is your perspective on this, like on this suffering that's going on? Yeah, I think the anxiety is a big piece. I think in general, like many, many people are very stuck in their heads and like feel like there's so much thinking going on, like by an absolute mile the biggest question i get on social media is about overthinking and feeling like there's too many thoughts in their mind um so i think that's a big area that's taking place and as we'll go on to explore i think there are a number of reasons why we're pretty stuck in our heads and then i think just general sort of low mood and kind of like apathy just like no like inner drive and when we go into this whole dopamine aspect we're really like depleting this big driving energy we have within us. And I think this low mood, low drive mixed with like a really thinky mind isn't a very nice place to be for most people. Yeah, so it's like a sense of also just like dissatisfaction, right? It's massive. uh, Because I think that on the one hand, like you have the extreme end of the problem where people are like depressed and maybe suicidal and whatnot. 
or, or super addicted, right? Like life destroyingly addicted to whatever social media or porn or something, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a very serious issue. But I think there's also a huge part of the, like the population pie where it's like, it's not that bad. Mm -hmm. It's not like you're not functioning anymore because of social media or, or a smartphone addiction or whatever. But it's, it's just like a low level of dissatisfaction. It's just like mild but constant misery. Right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that is definitely, it seems to be like almost normal nowadays. Yeah. Definitely. And I think that's one of the biggest things. I think for many, it's not necessarily really bad, but it's definitely not really good. Yeah, and like yeah. the, the feeling where you feel like excited and driven and happy in your mind, it's such like an enjoyable experience. And I think many, many people are not in that kind of space. So trying to shift the mass in a different direction, yeah, I think is the yeah, key. Yeah. So let's let's talk about, so you have this model essentially mm -hmm. that, that connects this problem, this type of suffering with the, I think it's four key hormones that are driving human behavior. Yeah. And yeah, can you can you walk us through that? How does that work? Like from the essentially from the brain's perspective, what is going on, right? From the in inside the body, why are we feeling like this? What's going yeah. on? So we have these neurotransmitters that I think as a society we're beginning to get more familiar with. We've got dopamine, which is the big famous one. Mm -hmm. That's kind of motivate, motivating us, creating our drive. We've got oxytocin, which bonds us together. So that deep requirement for social connection, very, very important. You have serotonin, which is really responsible for your mood and your emotional state. And it's very interconnected with the way in which the body is communicating with the mind. Mm -hmm. And then you have endorphins, which are effectively a, a mechanism, a, a hormone neurotransmitter within us that enable us to reduce physiological and psychological pain. Obviously, our world isn't as physiologically challenging as when we were fighting animals and fighting each other <laughs> in hectic ways, but we have this mechanism to help us navigate challenging moments. And mm -hmm. How the model basically works is you have this dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, endorphins. Down the side, it spells dose, very fortunately, which I noticed <laughs> uh, about six months ago. So I go through this process basically of helping people build their bespoke dose of behaviors that could help alleviate and the challenges and get them into a much better space. All right. So I'd love to learn more about each of these. Like you said, dopamine is like everybody has heard about dopamine at this point, I think. Yeah, right? Everybody's sure. talking about dopamine too much dopamine or too little dopamine and dopamine detoxes and all kinds of stuff, right? So, and this is actually also something where, you know, I've seen some and read some stuff about this where, um, you know, you have people go, oh yeah, dopamine detox is the best thing than other people. No, no, it's actually not a dopamine detox, it's a misnomer or whatever, right? And, or, so, so let's try to, let's try to maybe <laughs> dispel some of the myths around this. Mm -hmm. So dopamine is, is the motivating hormone. Is that right? It, it like, it's yeah. the thing that makes you want to go and do things. Yeah, it's the thing that creates all of your pursuit and drive in right. your life, basically. So I always think it's fascinating to look at hunter-gatherers and how we operated for hundreds of thousands of years because yeah. that's what built this whole machine that we walk around in today. And dopamine is just the, the chemical that would come into the brain to motivate you to go out and hunt or build shelter or explore new places, find food, all of these right. different things. So dopamine come into the brain, create the motivation. And then also in the pursuit of it, the dopamine continues to rise to make the pursuit of a goal feel good. Mm. And then when you achieve the reward, so you hunt down the animal or you build shelter successfully, then you get an additional dopamine hit as well that reminds and reinforces you to continue to do the behavior because it was advantageous to keeping you alive. I see. So it's, it's, 
it creates the drive to do stuff and also a rewarding feeling when you've reached the goal. Yeah, definitely. And so when we have the problem, because usually, yeah, dopamine is often talked about in the context of things like social media addiction, right? Someone's scrolling through TikTok all day. So how does that relate? So you have, what happens in terms of your dopamine when you're doing this? Yeah, and this is such an interesting area because dopamine is beginning to get like a bad reputation effectively mm. as like a thing that we want to avoid. But dopamine is total heaven in its natural form. It feels unbelievable to be high on dopamine. And when you feel very excited about your life and productive with your work and successful and like you're achieving things, that is high dopamine. So that's a nice place to be. Mm. There is a way in which society has effectively hijacked it because you can imagine for all this time that we're doing all these things, the peak of experience was these moments where we hunted down an animal, built shelter, met new co new friends and social groups. And so mm -hmm. these were the best moments. And we effectively over time have realized, wow, that feels really good, that dopamine experience. And then gradually began to synthesize ways to experience that kind of pleasure, mm -hmm. which is the creation of alcohol and cigarettes and anything that's fast pleasure to the brain. And mm -hmm. how it basically works, the comparison between, say, hunting an animal compared to scrolling your TikTok feed is when we were originally living on this planet, life's really hard. Like it was really hard to stay alive. And that's just how it was. It was a lot yeah. of effort. And whatever created us, God or biology or whatever put us here, needed to make sure that it felt good to pursue things so that we felt good in the experience of it so that we keep doing it, keep alive, mm -hmm. create our, uh, our society. And how dopamine functions is if you have an activity where you put in effort, and then you're putting an effort and then you feel good afterwards. Dopamine bubbles effectively will build in your brain. So you take exercise, for example, you start exercising. It's like, oh, this is quite a lot of effort. I don't feel that good. It's not even that enjoyable at the beginning. Gradually you start to feel better and this goes on this nice gentle curve. Then you feel this rewarding experience during it and after it. Mm. When you have something like TikTok, it's, I'm bored of my work or whatever it may be. Let's go into TikTok. And immediately your brain is experiencing pleasure. I think TikTok's the epitome of this because they've managed to nail this algorithm so well. Mm. So the brain suddenly goes from no dopamine to tons of dopamine. So rather than a nice gentle curve, dopamine spikes. And mm. how our brain and body works, it just seeks to live in balance. There's that whole homeostasis concept. So it wants to be in balance. And because it spikes, it then goes, wow, what am I doing up here? So it has to go back below its baseline level effectively to get mm -hmm. back to normal. And this big spiking and falling, these peaks and troughs mm -hmm. is what caused people to get into low dopamine states. Right. So is it like, it's almost like the like the junk food shortcut to the thing we actually want, right? If I, mm -hmm. I have an innate drive to, oh, I want to find a mate. So I'm attracted to attractive women. And usually that would be a pursuit. It's like, oh, I have to go out, I have to talk to someone. And it would be it would be like this challenge of, can I get to the point where I'm actually interacting with an attractive woman and potentially making her my mate? Mm -hmm. Versus now I pull out my phone and it's just immediately sexy girl in a bikini dancing. And then the next one and the next one and the next one. Yeah, It's almost like I'm getting an immediate overdose of the thing I'm supposed to be pursuing over a longer period of time. A hundred percent. It's That's exactly it. And effectively we're shortcutting all the things we instinctively desire. Right. And in the process of shortcutting it, we're not actually doing things that our body and mind require. Like say the mm. objective of finding a mate is ultimately at a, like a simple level, it's just to procreate and have more humans. Yeah. And when you 
have that instinctive desire, I want a mate, and then you see a sexy girl on Instagram or TikTok, and then at least you're watching porn, and then you're watching porn, and then that's how you're stimulating yourself. That is the opposite of advantageous to creating new humans. Yeah, it's like yeah. the opposite way around. You're just getting rid of that uh, experience for yourself. So anything that shortcuts it, like gambling is another big thing in this. Junk food is another big thing. Gambling is quick money without having to really put in loads of effort. So it's again, it's like against the instinctive desire. Mm -hmm. Junk food is like, we obviously instinctively desire calories and we want calories in our body. That's just shortcutting fast calories in and anything that goes against our survival. Our body's just so clever and it's just trying to say, please stop doing this because right. it isn't making me feel good. And right. that so is what is creating all the crap in our minds. Right, right. So the, so the misery... So on the one hand, you were talking about like, because you have a spike, because it's almost like an overdose of the thing, the the body like overcorrects the other way, it crashes below baseline, mm -hmm. which is the exact same thing that happens with, for example, sugar, right? If you, it's like, if you imagine like you're, you're walking, you know, you're outside, you're walking and you come across, I don't know, an apple tree and you eat an apple and okay, you're getting sugar along with fiber. Plus you have to climb up on the tree. It's like physical activity. And then it's like very rewarding. Oh, it's sweet, it's sugary, this is good. But if you just reach for a candy bar, shove it in your mouth, you're getting way more sugar, mm -hmm. no fiber, and it just creates this in insane spike. And the response to that is it crashes below baseline, right? So in a way, it seems like equivalent, right? What's, ha what's happening to your, uh, to your metabolic system when you're getting an overdose of sugar is similar what's happening to your your brain, let's say, when you get like an overdose of these stimulants, these these dopamine stimulating things, right? Mm -hmm. So like porn would be an example or, or much of social media probably as well, right? Mm -hmm. So you're, you're crashing below baseline in response to that spike. But what I'm hearing you say is that essentially this is, this is almost like a safety mechanism where your body is going, hold on, this is actually not the thing we're mm -hmm. supposed to pursue. So like the misery we're experiencing is our body saying, hey, this is not working. A hundred percent. And this is just like, this is how intelligent the system we live in yeah. is. Because if it didn't make us feel crap when we're eating all the junk food and watching the porn and spending our life on social media, we as a society would just go more and more down that route right. and then eventually just be zombies on the couch eating terrible food. And yeah, yeah. that for a procreation of society is not going to be very good. So we do have this system that's trying to really say, wake up and look at how all this stuff is affecting you. And yeah. even with that, we have this additional chemical that's actually purposely designed for this. We have endorphins, which I mentioned earlier, that are the pain relief chemical effectively. And you hear mm. things like runner's high. And when you exercise, I feel this like natural high and these kind of things. So that's pain relief. We have its opposing cousin effectively called dynorphin which releases into the system when the dopamine is getting super low, below baseline. And it, intentionally stimulate psychological pain and discomfort to try and say something's not right here and i think with this like you begin to see that this mental health challenge could be a little bit more simple than maybe we are giving credit because a lot of this stuff is just throwing the brain completely out of balance and it's just screaming at us i'm gonna make yeah. you feel anxious and low until you do something about it i mean that that was that's really an eye-opening idea for me right because you know yeah thinking about it like that is like oh no the the discomfort you're experiencing is is a is a further healthy functioning of the system. Yeah, <laughs> it's I've never thought of it like that before, but it's like that makes a lot of sense, and it's also a very positive message. Really, it's saying, hey, this is in a way this is a good thing, right? It's like the warning signs are going off, and and you know, it's also I have had um, so I have personal experience with depression, 
And this is also something where, you know, over the years, my my mind changed about it because originally I got this idea, which I think is a common idea in our society that it's like, oh, it's just a chemical imbalance, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, you kind of genetically unlucky mm-hmm. that your brain gets depressed, right? Yeah, here's, yeah it's a big convo yeah, now. Yeah, so, and so here's some, you know, antidepressants basically, right? <laughs> Whereas other sources, and for example, uh, Johan Hari has a book about this called Lost Connections that was really influential for me where, where he basically says, listen, uh, depression is can be interpreted as a sign that something's wrong. Mm-hmm. And something has been wrong for so long and maybe you've like been shoving it down or ignoring it for so long that eventually the system is like, no, you have to deal with this. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm going to make you unable <laughs> to do any of the other stuff, right? You have to deal with this core issue. And I have found that in my experience with depression, it is very, I mean, there's usually some core thing where it's almost like, I really know why I'm feeling this bad, right? Mm-hmm. If I really like listen and ask myself, why might I be this miserable? It's like, yeah, there's something I haven't addressed in my life. There's something I've been trying to ignore. Um, and and that's also much more helpful than just thinking, oh, it's too bad, right? It's too bad I'm just sad or I'm just anxious or whatever. Instead, think, think if this is a sign, what is it trying to tell me? Definitely, definitely. And I think this chemical imbalance concept is a challenge because I really believe in so many cases, cases, huge transformations could take place with the mind if you really look deeply at how you're living and whether there's emotional challenges that haven't been met and things like yeah, this. And yeah. emotions, they gain, they got their word from energy in motion. There's like this mm. Latin word, emotere, which be, basically means energy in motion. And it's mm. just they're largely housed within our body and we just have this very intelligent system that's just trying to guide us and if something's not right it's just going to let you know and the difficult thing is in our society now is for so many for a huge percentage of, for a huge percentage of society something isn't right but we have all of this quick fix distraction effectively where oh i'm not feeling good but if i go eat some ice cream i'll feel good for that period of time or scroll the social or watch the porn or drink the booze or whatever it may be yeah. so all of these underlying things that are really starting to say please do something different please do something different process this trauma whatever it may be is yeah. always getting missed and it just means this stuff is building and building and ultimately yeah. that's what leads to the really challenging moment yeah, yeah, exactly. No, that's. I think that's. Uh, like I said, in in my own experience, even though it's hard to admit in the in the moment, often mm-hmm. you'd rather just be a victim, mm-hmm. uh, and and just be like, oh, just save me, right? The please give me the pill that saves me. Yeah, for sure. But but that confrontation with, hey, maybe that maybe I have to take some responsibility, or maybe there's something I can do here. It's in a way, it's at the same time scary and empowering, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's that's really interesting to hear you confirm that in a way. But let's so lest we get off track too much here. So we were talking about dopamine, right? I think we have a decent idea now, okay, uh, how this motivating system is being hijacked. Mm -hmm. And essentially, so overstimulation, uh, I think of it like junk food for the brain, right? It's like you're getting the junk food quick rewards that leads to this state of misery uh, that's trying to get you back to pursuing something that is kind of more real, I guess. Mm Um, and I think even there, I mean, I, I wonder what, what you think about this, but it seems to me that the the clue about what you should be pursuing instead of whatever the distraction is, is probably in the distraction, right? So if the thing is, if I'm over-consuming porn, probably what I, what I should be doing, what I need to be doing is find a partner, right? Have actual real-life interactions with real people 
Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this, I have a sex drive, right? So I want to have sex with real people. And as long as I'm compensating with porn, it'll just get worse and worse and worse until I get on the other pursuit. And and similarly for it's like, you know, if someone's, uh, I don't know, playing Fortnite all day, well, you probably want adventure with people. Mm-hmm. And, and this is like the replacement adventure with people. Yeah. Um, so in a way that it seems to me that the clue of what you should be, or the healthy version is like implied in the unhealthy thing you're doing. I think that is so accurate. And immediately, immediately as you said, it something resonated for me in the recent week. So mm. I, as you know, recently came out to Lisbon, came out like a month ago from living in London. And in my first few weeks, I just wasn't feeling that good. It was a bit of a new environment and I'd been very excited about this and suddenly it's like a big change of pace. And mm. I had this experience about two weeks ago of realizing like I actually felt quite lonely. And in general, like I'm someone that really values social connection. I love being around people. I love chatting and hearing what people have to say. And I wasn't feeling that good one day, like particularly low. And then I was thinking, God, I think I'm spending quite a lot of time on my phone at the moment, more than I typically would at home. Like, given all of this stuff, I'm pretty disciplined with these kind of things. Mm-hmm. Looked at the screen time and it was like two hours up on average per day compared to what I would normally be doing. And then looking at the apps, like it was largely just Instagram that I was on. Mm-hmm. And really based on what you just said, all I was doing was really seeking to connect with people and... I didn't have the opportunity. I hadn't met any new friends yet. I hadn't been to your breath work where we met and these kind of things. And in that, I was just craving social connection. And not only are you screwing with your dopamine system, you're massively undersatisfying this thing that your body's really wanting. So then mm. you just get lower and lower and you go in this perpetual loop. And I think something like loneliness is so common, so yeah. common. And all the lonely people are sitting there staring at people interacting and yeah. imagine what that's doing to the brain. So yeah, yeah. yeah. I think yeah, yeah. And and that's also that's a tricky thing about it I think is that it causes it's like the again if I can make a comparison to sugar right the problem is you you eat sugar it gives you this spike and then crash and the crash makes you want more sugar. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So it gives you more of the itch of that it's kind of on the one hand right it's basically telling you hey you should actually in this case right you're lonely and you're trying to get the you're trying to scratch that itch on Instagram, mm-hmm. you get that kind of crash, you feel even worse. In, a, in one way, it's a signal to say, hey, go actually interact with people, but it also makes you want to scratch that itch again by doing more Instagram, right? Definitely. And, and that's where it becomes addictive in a way. Yeah, and then when you're in these low states, your body just then wants more and more of the quicker pleasure. And, yeah. and then you get, and then during that period, if you imagine these dopamine bubbles sitting in your brain that you've built through the things that were effort in your day effectively, whenever you're really low and there aren't many of these bubbles, you're feeling like crap. And then you're going searching for more and more and you are just ridding the whole system of dopamine. And right. when it's completely empty is when we feel so low and we think loads in our heads. And you can just imagine this dopamine stuff is, like pretty much from a motivation point of view, the sole thing that's keeping us alive as a human being. Like we've got all this other stuff going on, but if you just took dopamine out of a hunter-gatherer's brain, they're not going anywhere. They're not getting off the couch, basically. I don't know if they had couches. <laughs> not getting off the soil. And yeah. uh, they're not going to hunt. They're not going to look for anything. They're not going to find water. They're not going to socialize. And we're so low on this resource. And you can imagine the body is just going to feel so anxious and nervous because it's like, how the hell am I going to stay alive if I don't have this stuff in me? Right, right. And that's pretty much where many of of us are spending a great portion of our days right yeah yeah that makes sense because it's like in a way your body doesn't know that you're safe 
mm. even like even if you're not doing anything right because yeah you can just order food and like all the all your survival needs are basically met even if you don't do anything but but your nervous system or your body doesn't know that and it's like oh my god this is dangerous definitely this is a dangerous state of low of low dopamine yeah. we we live in this comfortable state but the body can't see the future like the mind can yeah. the body is just sitting there thinking if i'm low on this resource i might not be able to do anything right. so yeah it gets yeah. pretty nervous and low during that experience yeah okay now you were talking about this experience of yeah the loneliness right and seeking that and is this where um is that where oxytocin will come in is that what role does that play there yeah so oxytocin is a uh very important component and something again that I think is being impacted by all of this primary experience and the most like predominant release of this in for us as humans is when a mother gives birth both the mother and the child experience this huge surge in oxytocin mm. which enables the initial maternal bond to take place and then during the the breastfeeding and all of the physical touch and the cuddles and the love during that experience early on oxytocin begins to build between the two of them and that's what enables this like really loving experience to take place and the desire to nurture them and raise them and for the kid to have like a parental attachment that it seeks to observe and inspire from mm -hmm. and all these things and then as we go through our life this is just the chemical that's coming in and just motivating you to to have social bonds effectively and What's interesting is it's not just about the bond you have with others. This one also really interconnects with the bond you have with yourself. And oh. you can have effectively external oxytocin, which is outwardly, how am I connecting into my group? And then you have internal oxytocin, how am I connecting into myself? And both of them are very interconnected. And I think specifically the internal oxytocin is something many struggle with. I think a lot of people don't necessarily have a great relationship with themselves in their heads, how they communicate with themselves and how they talk to themselves about who they are as a person, these kind of things. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's kind of the, the main function here. Yeah. And in, in what way is, you know, is there a similar pattern where, yeah, are we getting like a junk food version of, of an oxytocin stimulant or something you know is there a similar pattern where it's like we're doing the one thing when we should be doing the other thing other than under satisfying it through the through the internet so yeah. for example in the youth this the depth of social connection i perceive is weakening massively like i do a lot of training in the school environment and i think many of them have tons of friends but not very deep friends mm. and because of how it works and something like constantly sending loads of like kind of pointless snapchats all the time to lots of people with like not even really words on they're just kind of distributing what they're doing all the time mm. i think that would be something that's effectively bad for it but in general, I think it's more just the undersatisfaction of deep, meaningful, high-quality conversations that's bad for it, rather than like right. a hijack method that yeah, with the yeah, dopamine. Yeah. yeah, and so could it also be like this? Reminds me of something that that was a really insightful moment for me. Like a couple of years ago, I was living in Bali, and which is a wonderful place in many ways. But one of the things is, that isn't that great is like the power grid isn't that robust, right? Yeah, I've been. So, so you, you'll have like uh, occasional like blackouts and whatnot, right? And, but there was this moment where I was living there with my business partner at the time. And, you know, we'd been both basically just been working away at our computers all day. And then a blackout comes in. And it's evening and you know it's just like okay obviously everything shuts down no internet and stuff so you can't you can't keep working 
And within a few minutes, we're both like sitting outside having a conversation. And it just made me think, oh, this is actually great, right? It's yeah. like I'm I'm living here in a beautiful place. I'm living with with one of my best friends who, you know, most of the time we have been living in different places mm -hmm. in the world, right? So this is like a rare moment where we're in the same place. And as I'm having a conversation, it's great. This is actually something I want all the time. Yeah. But it takes it takes a blackout, right? <laughs> it's like you have to take away my screens before I realize, oh, this is actually a pretty good option, you know? So I wonder if we're also just like distracted. Um, it, you know, is that part of the reason why we don't do it enough? Because we're just constantly FOMOing, uh, you know, screen-based stuff? Definitely. I think... COVID was a massive redirection for society in many ways. And mm. one of them being like, um, the adoption of tech was monumental. Like, of course, we all had phones and stuff before COVID, but really it did change our relationship with these devices because it was the only source of oxytocin during right. the like peaks of COVID mm. to connect via these forms. And we had people doing like Zoom quizzes and all this stuff because that's how much humans want humans, basically. Yeah. It's just yeah. what we require. And I do think it's, the observation of others connecting isn't great for the mind. Like if you imagine being back at school and say you were like experiencing quite a lot of loneliness, maybe you weren't that confident as a kid at school and you spent your day sitting on the playground looking at the people socializing and having fun. That was totally me, by the way, as a kid. <laughs> well, yeah. I appreciate the vulnerability. Yeah. And, and I can imagine you share that wasn't a wonderful experience, no, no. just like observing people connecting. And specifically this like with the stories or like instagram stories this is really the social connection aspect of the uh of the social media platforms and you're just observing others connecting which is going to make the system think oh i want that and then yeah. doesn't have it so that's a big part and then i also think there's a lot to be said for in the moments of social connection not actually deeply connecting also because of the tech because you see everyone with their like phones out the whole time they're socializing mm. one of my uh cousins she's like 15 and she talks about how like there'll never really be a moment where the phones are actually fully gone like they will chat to each other but the phone's always there and i know in the world of dating like it's becoming very normal and like acceptable to sit on a date and just like momentarily just be on your phone for a few minutes and then not be on your phone mm. and all of these things they're just like distracting us from the challenge of social connection and like the dopamine thing nothing is supposed to be some easy bliss experience it's just not how life yeah. is and we really need the experience of like deep vulnerable social connection and i think mm -hmm. we're just missing it effectively mm -hmm. you know this reminds me of something that in in um when it comes to you know focus and distraction is something i've been very fascinated with for a long time and i remember reading about a study where they tested uh, people's, you know, something about people's cognitive ability, so some cognitive and focus-related tests. Mm -hmm. And they tested how the presence of a phone uh, influences this in, you know, in different, like, gradients. And what's interesting is that even if a phone is just present, so in your pocket or on the table, that has a measurable impact, a negative impact on people's ability to like focus and, and do the cognitive tasks. So even if they're not interacting with it, just it being there as a potential distraction is a problem, right? Wow, okay. And and yeah, what you just said just made me wonder, you know, how much of that is also the case in social connections where even if everybody just has their phone, you know, on the table, mm -hmm. How much is that changing the interaction versus if the phones were just not not even visible, right? I think it's very, very significant. And 
I think that study makes a lot of sense because I really have to be so good with this phone stuff because I'm very vulnerable to being addicted to the phone. Like mm. I find them entertaining. I'm very techie. So I just like the experience of a phone. Like I know there's a new iPhone next month and I'm going to yeah. be on my way to get it because I like yeah. the tech. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm super into this stuff. So I also have like a... <laughs> it's a confusing know, a love-hate relationship in a way, yeah. I think so much because of the fact I, I love it so much I want to get rid of the bad parts yeah. so that we can all just keep loving it. But yeah. with what you were saying there, in the mornings, for example, I do this whole phone fasting process, like food fasting, but with phones, mm. and go through not checking it when I wake up. The phone's on airplanes, there's no notifications, and it's charged in another room. And I then leave the home without the phone and go for my walk. And nice. some days, like this morning, I needed to shoot a video this morning. So the phone can remain the, the phone can remain on airplane, but it had to come with me. And there's something that's just so different when it's with me to when it's not with me, even though it's on airplane and I didn't look at it. My mind like thinks in almost like a different way to when I'm completely free of it. And I do just think we're electrical beings and there's a big thing in that phone. And I just think if it's near us, we're connected to it in some way. And mm. when I get out the house for prolonged periods of time without the phone or sometimes if I go for like dinner with someone or something, I just like leave it in a bag or whatever it may be. I just find... I just let go of that whole area of my life of social media and wondering about what the hell's going on. And I just get so much more immersed in the experience I'm having. And from mm. your study with the concentration, I can imagine that's what's happening. The mind is just 100% on one thing rather than like semi on another. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. I like the I like the idea of phone fasting. And I've also noticed this, that on the one hand, it makes sense. And it's so convenient to have more and more stuff that like concentrated in your phone, right? I rarely ever take out a card anymore. I just pay with the phone. And Desperate they, for that passport to get into that <laughs> phone so I can yeah, exactly. ditch the wallet. <laughs> Stuff like that, right? It's like just in a way, yes, let's just consolidate everything onto this phone. But on the other hand, it's mm. exactly that kind of, I've also sometimes noticed it's like, hey, I always have my phone with me now because, and I, I always have a good reason to have it with <laughs> me, but it, it really would be better in a way, it would be better if it didn't do all that stuff. I do know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. One thing I found in the that has helped me with the leaving the house without the phone, because I try and do this like a few times a day, is, and this seems now like a giant marketing campaign for another piece of tech, but the watch has actually been quite mm. useful because it has the card on it. Right, right. And because I have the card on it and the time, I don't even have like a, a data watch. So it's not, without the phone, it doesn't like receive anything basically. Yeah, yeah. But I found... The watch has enabled me for like those small things like being able to like get on a train or whatever it may be, get on a tram. That enables me to to beep it, but not have the phone with me. So yeah. that can help. Yeah, that's I, that's I, I quite like that. Yeah, and I think this is this is something I want to try as well because now that you mention it, I have I have done that as well where I deliberately leave the house without the phone, but it's much too rare these days. Mm -hmm. So I definitely want to incorporate that as well. And I do think this is a, an interesting way of, of moving forward instead of, you know, you, you're essentially using another tech solution. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's quite ironic. But it is, I, I agree, like, it, since it's not, you don't have a data plan on it, it is much more of just a tool, right? It really is a tool. And even yeah. with it on, like, I have them on full, silent, everything. So it doesn't, yeah, do, yeah. It doesn't really do anything in my watch except track me and give me my uh, time, but mm -hmm. give me my cards. And mm -hmm. you can't really crash the dopamine. You can't. Thank yeah. God, scroll your TikTok feed on here. Please <laughs> yeah. don't add that in future models. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I really believe 
that we need 60 minutes a day where the phone's not in sight. I think that that's always my goal every day is to find 60 minutes. And for example, this morning, the phone had to come with me because I was shooting a video. So at some point today, where, when I, in the evening or during my lunch, I've got to just find 60, like in a straight period yeah. where you don't see the phone. And for me, it's just so restorative to how my mind is operating. That's great. That's great. I'm, I'm going to immediately try that out as well. Nice. I like that idea very much. All right. So let's see if we can keep going. So we, we've done dopamine, oxytocin. Next one was serotonin. Yeah. And again, I've definitely read a lot about serotonin, but right now I have no idea what it does. What does serotonin do? <laughs> yeah. So serotonin of them all is the most mental healthy chemical. They're obviously all massively impacting our mental health. But when you look at the world's current solution to mental health around any kind of antidepressant medications and these kind of things. They all target serotonin. You may have heard of SSRIs and things like that. That's selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So serotonin is the one that's really responsible for our mood and our emotional state. So mm. one way to imagine being low on serotonin and you'll understand why in a moment is when you're very hungry and you experience that irritability and frustration in your mood and you can be short with people and you experience that dip in how you feel when you're that hangry <laughs> when you're hangry that's very much low serotonin and one of the reasons that's taking place is because 95 percent of this neurotransmitter is being made inside your gut inside your digestive tract in comparison to the others that are largely made in your brain and in your blood this one is being made inside your digestive tract so you can imagine when the body is very hungry it gets low on this resource and then the mood is going to change and I really see the serotonin as the, the chemical that's really communicating the whole state of the body with the mind. So we have this mechanism, nerve, whatever you may call it, called the vagus nerve, which is this giant nerve that connects the whole spinal cord to the chest and the abdomen and the, all of this stuff down here. And when the body is fed well and gets a lot of natural light and does things like breathes calmly, sleeps well, moves, get into, gets into natural environments, grounds on the earth with bare feet, all of these things make the body feel very calm. And when you look at the literature and research, largely the best behaviors for the serotonin are all of these things. So anything that's making the, the body feel happy effectively makes the mind feel happy as a result of serotonin. Mm. Okay. Right. And so, yeah, you, you just mentioned a whole um, list of things where I guess it's also we generally don't get enough of that stuff. A hundred percent. I think every single one of them is out of balance with with what it wants. This is the most hunter-gatherer chemical of them all. It really wants us to be running around in the forest, basically, right. in the sunshine. And when you when you go through this list, so nature would be the first one to consider how much time do we spend in natural environments? It's just crazy how irrelevant nature's become to us as a society. Yeah, yeah. And we know nature feels good. Even everyone that has a dog, for example, knows they have to go walk their dog in a park every day. But we're no different to the dog. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we all need to walk ourselves in a park every day. We yeah. actually evolved with dogs, effectively. That's how similar we are to them. So nature is a massive thing. You then have sunlight is very significant for this system. Morning sunlight, first thing in the morning, very, very powerful. We live indoors now, so yeah. it's like we're getting a lot less. Then things like our diet, very interconnected. You can imagine nutritious food will begin to like fuel the body in the right way and the mechanism will work efficiently and serotonin will build. And the diet, as we mentioned, isn't ideal. Mm. And then things like sleep, 
sleep is off, sleep builds this chemical. A lot of people just lie in bed scrolling the TikTok yeah. and that kind yeah, of yeah. stuff. So all of these natural instinctive behaviors that our body wants are just not really getting satisfied at all in the pursuit of all the dopamine instead, yeah, which yeah. is kind of the loop that's taking place. I like how you see it's it's like the most hunter-gatherer um, hormone because I, I feel like that's easy to remember. It's like, how closely am I living to a hunter-gatherer? Basically, am I doing hunter-gatherer stuff? Yeah. Um, and I think this is also hugely connected to environment. I've noticed this because I spent many years essentially living as a nomad. Mm-hmm. And so I've been to loads of countries. I've lived in many, you know, larger and smaller cities and so on. And that's something I, I notice. There is such a huge connection to where you live and how much of this kind of stuff you get. Yeah. Because you can, you know, I've, I've experienced apartments, for example, that are just dark all day. Yeah. Right? Where it's just because there's just buildings everywhere around, maybe small windows. And if you're in, it's like you could spend all day like without ever having a ray of sunshine hitting you, right? Yeah. <laughs> and in other places, it's like, oh, you wake up in the morning because you know, you're right next to the seaside and there's, you know, you hear the sounds and there's sun is waking you up, right? And the difference in life quality that makes with zero extra effort mm-hmm. added is just absolutely massive, right? Um, and this is also something where it makes a huge difference, you know, are there, if you live in a city, you know, are there nice parks? How far away are those parks? <laughs> Stuff like that can make such a big difference to how much of these um yeah, these serotonin boosting activities that you mentioned you get. And I think that's something that, yeah, is often overlooked, I think, as a factor of, you know, deciding where to live, where for me that has changed, right? Where that is something I'm willing to spend money on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm willing to, you know, I'm willing to spend more and take on other inconveniences if I can be in a location that makes it easier for me to get outside, to get sunshine, to, to go walk in a park or to get out into the wilderness even. I think it should be a a really key part of that decision. And I'm currently very much immersed right in the center of that. I was living in very built up London just like Mm. a few months back. And I mean, potentially the biggest reason I left was just because I didn't feel that calm in that environment. It was just too much. And I always was someone that was like very much okay with that super stimulated life. And then I calmed things down a bit and they didn't really match anymore. And Mm. Now I definitely am am in the pursuit of this environment where I feel a lot better. And I think when you get into these nicer living environments and you optimize the experience, then you just seek for healthier in all aspects of your life and how much water you drink and whether you're going to do some meditation in the morning. Because the whole environment is like, wow, this is quite conducive to me living a healthy life. And then it breeds health, basically. And yeah, I mean, ultimately... I want to be in a giant tech tree house in the forest. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, <laughs> That's too, where I'm too. heading in the next 10 years, yeah, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think another thing, something that I've also always tried to cultivate is it's also your social environment that mm-hmm. makes a big difference. Because if you have a friend group where, you know, oh, this weekend we're going surfing and, oh, yeah. by the way, let's go meet in the park and stuff. Again, it makes it a lot easier to if you're just in a in a friend group where, where there's a lot of active people and, and it's it's almost like this it's basically the unwritten agreement that this is the kind of thing we do yeah um, and again it's just it's really worth cultivating and it's really worth seeking that out 
Um, because I'm a, I'm a big believer in making this stuff as easy as possible for yourself, right? Yeah. So that I it agree. doesn't sound like, oh my God, there's another bunch of stuff I have to do, right? It's like, oh. <laughs> yeah. And then you <laughs> don't even get as much joy from it. When it's a have to, you don't yeah. get as much value. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious on this note, and I wonder, like, I know that you've, um, you said you, you worked in schools at some point and you have experience with, uh, with like kids and teens. Like, what do they think about this kind of stuff? Are they like on board with this idea? Or are they like, no, no, I, I live in the metaverse. You just don't get it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's what they will be saying in time. And I'll be chatting to them through the metaverse, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, with teens, I have to go down a bit of a different route, which maybe I should bring this route to, to employees and adults that I train as well. But with teens, when I'm looking at how they're living their lives, because this stuff is just gone. Like mm. hanging out in the forest without your phones and all chatting and building a camp. Mm. That is not a thing. And when I look back at being young, that was my favorite parts, basically. Mm. And I think was for many. And with teens, I go down the route really of figuring out what is it they're seeking for most in their life right now? And a lot of the time it's to be attractive, which is fair. Like that's that's a big pursuit for us as humans is to be popular, it's to be confident, it's to be less anxious. And mm. I really go down the route of, of suggesting to them that the phone is very likely inhibiting your likelihood to achieve these things. It's making you effectively less attractive, more self-conscious, less confident, less popular if you're always in your phone, you're never building social connection, all of these different things. So I kind of find what they really want, explain how the phone is impacting it, and then gently guide them towards the pursuit of these other things in alignment. So say, for example, when you're a teen, beginning to date is a really big and exciting and nerve wracking thing. So I guide them to a phone fasting date on a walk in nature, for mm. example. Mm. So like find the core of the desire and then try and get them into these kind of environments. And I do think this is all possible. I really think we can achieve this. I think the metaverse is going to come and we're going to start spending a lot of time in the VR, just like the body is sending us a message now. It's going to send us a really loud one when we're in there, I'm sure. And I think there is a, a solution here where humans will reprioritize the instinctive human part of us as we move into this techie sort of being that we're becoming. Yeah. Yeah. And finding that balance is the key. Yeah. And I mean, I, I really like the high-tech treehouse thing because... Um, I also, I like this kind of stuff and, you know, I do want to see, I want to experience, you know, cool VR stuff. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I just don't want it to take over my life, right? <laughs> Same for me. I, I, I'm sure there's going to be amazing experiences in there. Like, yeah. I love playing tennis and golf, for example, and I imagine that I'll be playing tennis and golf in there in VR. And when I say this to people, they say, oh, no, but the real thing would be way better. And of course, <laughs> the real thing would be way better. But I don't play golf with my friend in London at the moment, for example, yeah, yeah. or in winter when it's dark straight after work. And I do think there'll be aspects of it that enable us to socially connect. I have some optimism around whether maybe in the teen environment they will rather than just like sitting and snapchatting and scrolling tiktok all evening maybe like hang out in rooms in the metaverse which yeah. i know it's all super techie but that could satisfy us more as a species than what we're currently doing so yeah. i think just beginning i'm studying this metaverse thing a lot because i think it's what's coming and i just think beginning to deduce what will be the best bits to go in that direction would be cool. yeah 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 and i think that i think it's also a thing of um personal responsibility just like with food 
we now live in this environment of an abundance of food and an abundance of, of hyper-stimulating food. Mm-hmm. And that can easily become a detriment, right? You, yeah, you can easily get addicted to various kinds of food experiences that are often also very cheap and very convenient, right? You can, you, you can be snacking on chips all day. You can be eating sugary stuff all day. And it's, it's kind of, I guess, for the first time in the history of humankind, you really have to have this personal responsibility where you can't just follow your urges, right? If you just follow your urges, it kind of leads to destruction. Mm-hmm. And, but it is possible, clearly it's possible to say, hey, I, I eat mostly healthy food. Every once in a while I have a candy bar or something, right? You can have a healthy balance of this stuff. Definitely. And I think with, with all of this tech stuff, it's the same thing. If you just follow your urges before you know it, you'll be a zombie just scrolling or, or yeah, you live in the metaverse or whatever. But how cool is it to be able to play a round of golf on Mars? Yeah. In in VR. <laughs> the ball right? go far. There's less gravity. Right. <laughs> I mean, and but that doesn't mean that replaces your other activities. It's like, yeah, it's whatever. It's a rainy day. You're going to be inside anyway. You do something cool in virtual reality. And then when, when it's nice outside, you go outside, right? It's like mm-hmm. that kind of thing where you can have a healthy balance. But it, I think we have to like step up Mm-hmm. and take care of this. You cannot just go with the flow. You can't just live in default mode because there's all this stuff like, yeah, something like TikTok, it is designed to get you hooked and it's extremely good at it. Unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and you know, th- I was having a conversation about this with Abby the other day where it's like, how come it's like that? Well, I think this is just a side effect of the incentives that exist in, you know, in capitalism, essentially, where if you, it's like the only way to win, if you want to start a new social media company or app, the only way to win is to go even harder on this, Mm -hmm. right? To be even more addictive, even more attention capturing. You can't win by saying, oh, here's a, you know, a reasonable balanced social experience. Like, no, it's not going to work, right? (laughs) You have to outcompete the others. And so it's just like, that's the reality we live in right now. And mm-hmm. again, I th- I can only think of you have to take personal responsibility somehow. I agree. And I think it is just a, a discipline-based training thing that needs to occur. I think if you follow your urges in the modern world, you just end up as an alcoholic, junk food, porn addict, basically. Exactly. Like, yeah. and, <laughs> and it's just not surprising. Alcohol yeah. feels nice. It goes in porn. We instinctively want to have sex. All these different things. So I do think... It is a thing where you just have to get super disciplined. And with the phone, I really believe the only way with the phone to avoid it is it not being near you for periods of time. I think it's, the urge is too much. There is so many different things that make you want to be in that phone. You've got work life in there, which, of course, we're very interconnected with. Social life. You've got all your interests are in there. So it's impossible to avoid it, really. So I think getting disciplined with, oh, I'm going to take it off my desk when I'm working and put it in another mm. room for periods of time and I'm going to not go on it when I first wake up and when I'm in social situations, have some boundaries of during social, I'll put it in a bag and I won't check it for the next hour. Yeah. And I think beginning to set up these disciplined boundaries, I think is really, really key. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, what I can also say with the phone, right? What I've done with the phone is that the phone is just not that of an attractive device for me because I'm not, I don't use social media and I don't have, I don't have any social media apps on there and I don't have any games on there or anything like that. And that's just a matter of habit. So 
the amount of like stimulation and distraction I can get from my phone is pretty limited. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't even <laughs> know what I'd use it for if I didn't have social media. I mean, at that point, it is a tool. Exactly, yeah, it's, it's it's mostly a useful tool. Although I have to say, right, I can still get, I can still find myself I'm um, spending too much time like texting people and stuff like that. Yeah, right? I'm also like. Uh, scratching an itch but i just wanted to mention this because on the one hand look i know that most people are not going to do this right most people are just not going to be willing to live without social media for example yeah for sure um but i also just want to mention that like that is actually also possible and for me mm -hmm. it works quite well because it's like i'm i take pride in being different mm -hmm. right? nice so I'm like i like that I, I don't use social media and <laughs> that makes me feel good somehow right <laughs> nice <laughs> But I just want to mention that because it's also like, you don't have to, like you can totally exist without this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe someone who's wired like me is like, oh yeah, I like being different too. You can just remove all this crap from your phone and it becomes a completely different tool, right? Um, but, I think for yeah. so, with your mental health, I think taking all those social media apps off your phone for a prolonged period of time would be potentially one of the best things you could ever decide to do. And I... It's so counterintuitive. That's my whole life is posting on social media effectively <laughs> and sharing this message and stuff on there. But I do think it's very valuable to do. And I'm following a similar path with alcohol to you with social media. Like alcohol is something I've decided to let go of. And I really think I've let go of it. I don't think it's coming back. Mm. And again, it's something that isn't very normal to do. I don't really know anyone at all that doesn't drink alcohol. And I'm finding so much joy in it. So I think... Mm beginning to realize we have more choice in this stuff than maybe we perceive we do i think is powerful so that's a wise idea yeah 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 and i think in both cases right with with alcohol as well where maybe you feel like well i i need to right it's mm -hmm. like how am i going to have fun how am i going to socialize but if you give yourself enough time uh, abstaining from it you suddenly realize oh it's actually fine mm. i can still have i can still go out with my friends and i'll just drink water and i can still have a lot of fun without getting drunk Definitely. But you have to like discover that for yourself. You do. And in any of these addictive behaviors, whenever you take it away from yourself, you experience the withdrawal of not having it. Like mm. most people are constantly in withdrawal of not being on social media. So they're going back in and you mm. can have the same with alcohol or junk food or whatever it may be. And there's only a short window of time, depending on the depth of addiction, of, of withdrawal you have to go through before joy begins to arise in the fact it's not even there. Like I'm now... Right. I was very worried about social life and dating life and these kind of things without alcohol just because I, it's so normal and it's what I've utilized throughout my social life and dating life my whole life. And my whole life, maybe not when I was a kid. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I've now discovered that it's absolutely fine. If anything, I'm enjoying my social interactions in a different way because I'm actually there and I'm not like mm. a pissed version of TJ that's like kind of vacant. <laughs> so <laughs> I think with any of these things, we just need to get like a little bit more experimental effectively. Nice. I did a video today about this and all I shared was you don't have to quit alcohol, but I'd love you to do a, a weekend where you don't have it and then see how you feel and yeah. then see if you enjoy that experience. And the same with social, delete it from Monday to Friday, see what happens that week. I think yeah. that mindset is good. Yeah, yeah, uh, definitely. I think that's, that's also, instead of having an all or nothing mm. mindset, just be like, let's see what happens. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right, let's see. So we've done the first three, we've done, uh, what was it, dopamine, um, oxytocin, serotonin. The last one is endorphins. Endorphins to make up the dose. Yeah. What's uh, what's up with endorphins? <laughs> what's up with endorphins? So these are slightly different to the other three. The other three are all taking us upwards towards something. Dopamine is mm. taking us towards the feeling of motivation. Oxy is taking us towards social connection. 
serotonin is boosting our emotional state. And these ones are really taking something away from our experience. And that is originally physiological pain that we may go through. And then now psychological pain, given our world is slightly transformed into a more psychologically challenging world over physiologically okay. challenging. So our mind is more challenged than our body. But if you imagine you were in some kind of situation where you were fighting an animal, in that moment where the animal hurts you, the endorphin system would release effectively the uh, the neurotransmitter to enable the pain to be taken away so you'd have a greater likelihood of surviving. And mm. when you look at research, endorphins is unbelievable for people going through a high amount of stress or a high amount of anxiety. It can be very relieving for people navigating depression because their mind is just in a lot of discomfort. And these effectively provide the most natural high. Like the experience people are getting from drugs or smoking weed or drinking alcohol, these kind of things that like natural, wow, I feel really high. Endorphins is really interconnected with that experience and mm. how it functions, given you can imagine it's really in like real physical situations, this mechanism would release. Nowadays, if you just push your body into physical pain, effectively physical discomfort in the moments you're running up the hill or you're hiking and it's like a really hard bit of the hike, you're swimming as far as you can, you're cycling. In the moments where the body's like, wow, this is really difficult it will then think, oh, they need the endorphin system to help them in this situation. And again, yeah. when we're looking at how all this interconnects with how we're living and why is this mental health problem happening, I really think if you ask yourself, how often is your body in like real physical difficulty during exercise? I think for many, it's not really entering that state very often. Mm -hmm. So this is, yeah, all interconnected with physically pushing ourselves. Yeah, th this is this is interesting. So, so the the first thing that came to mind here is, I guess this is the effect. I think that often happens if you get hurt, right? If you if you sustain some kind of an injury, usually mm -hmm. it doesn't hurt right away. Yeah. It starts hurting later. <laughs> Definitely. And that's that would be the endorphins. It's like a painkiller that you get. It is a painkiller. Yeah. Mm. Morphine, for example, which we built to enable us to like utilize pre-operations and these mm. kind of things or in immediate pain was built off of our understanding of endorphins. Right, right. Okay, and so, but obviously, that's that's like an extreme case, and we, we don't want to be out here getting injured all the time. <laughs> uh, what you need to do is just start running into walls, uh, yeah. And then you'll be releasing. <laughs> no, for sure. But yeah, what what you're saying is interesting because, so it's like you have to push yourself hard enough to, and and I guess what, what I'm hearing you say is that it would be healthy for us to have an endorphin release on a regular basis, if possible. Daily would be ideal. Daily, okay. And if you're not, but you have to push yourself into like a pain zone in order to get it, mm -hmm. which, which is interesting because, so in talking about physical exercise and movement, um, I, one of the things I often talk about is that I think it's a mistake for a lot of people, especially like someone who doesn't have an intrinsic motivation to exercise. Mm -hmm. It's a mistake to look for like, you know, the the best calorie burning exercise or something because you're probably going to hate it. Yeah, you will <laughs> hate it. For sure. And it's better to find some movement you enjoy. So it's like, oh, maybe you go to a dance class and you're like, this is fun, right? Dancing is very good for the endorphin system. Right, okay. Mm -hmm. um, but then th that would be like the flip side. Okay, you want to discover like the joy of movement and, and do it, yeah, not as a chore, but because you want to. Mm -hmm. But then I think that the risk on the other side is like, okay, are you actually pushing yourself hard enough? Because I, even if I think about, you know, one of the things I do is I, I just lift weights, but there as well, I wonder like, am I pushing myself hard enough to release, you know, to, to get that endorphin release? Because I feel it's quite easy to get through a workout where it's like, sure, my heart rate went up a bit and stuff, but. I think it would be 
from a weightlifting perspective, are you actually getting to the point where the final rep is next to impossible? Then it would be, yeah. you would be releasing the system. And I think what you're sharing is so true because it's not like if you're exercising not to max, it's not good for you. It's great for so many right, things yeah, and yeah. for the body to be moving. But if someone is in a, in a situation where maybe they haven't done much movement and they're trying to refine the joy in it, even like a, a walk could potentially activate their endorphin system because that is quite physically challenging to their right. system. So it's all relative to, to who you are and your current phys physiology mm. in terms of whether the system will release, basically. What about like an ice bath or even a cold shower? Is that enough of a like, because it's a discomfort stimulus, right? Yeah. It's like, <laughs> uh, would that trigger it too? Yeah, so cold water immersion, unbelievable for, for this system and also the dopamine system. Mm. So, And you see, hear so many people, oh, I started doing the cold water thing and my mental health is transformed and fantastic for both of them. The body will go into pain, definitely, in the cold water. Mm -hmm. On the other side of that, saunas are also a fantastic way to release mm. the endorphin system specifically. Mm -hmm. Cold water, a little bit more dopamine. A sauna is really fantastic here. So, yeah. A yeah. good, a good activity to be doing. Right. So that's you're basically seeking these extremes, these safe extremes, right? Well, yeah, and like the world was very extreme. Like right. staying alive through winters and stuff on Earth yeah. would have been a nightmare, and also <laughs> through hot summers. And yeah. there wasn't any fans. <laughs> yeah, there wasn't yeah. any air conditioning, and the world was just much more physically testing, effectively. Mm. And then our body, after doing that for so long, wants to be physically tested, effectively. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's also, I mean, I think there's also a mental component to that because I've never thought about it in this context, but I've always been a big fan of things like hot and cold exposure and things mm -hmm. like that. I also think there's there's a mental component to it, which I especially feel with cold immersion. Where you practice like sitting with the discomfort. Yeah. Right. And that seems like such a valuable life skill to, to basically sit in that cold water and you're feeling very strongly the urge to get out. Mm -hmm. You want to get out. It, it's very uncomfortable. And just to say, it's okay to feel this. It is okay to feel the I want to get out feeling and just not get out. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that it is so valuable. Although I, do, I don't know if, if it does transfer, but I think it's so valuable because... It seems to me that that's the same kind of experience you have when you, for example, experience withdrawals. Mm -hmm. Where you say, I really want to do the thing. I really want to smoke the cigarette or, or watch the porn or whatever it is that you're withdrawing from. And and to be, to be able to say, I'm just going to sit here in this unpleasant experience and it's fine. You know, yeah. that, that seems to be like such a life hack. I, lo I love that. And this is a... A topic I've been researching a lot recently, this idea of sitting with difficulty effectively. Mm. And Andrew Huberman, who's like a big neuroscientist in this space, and he talks about this concept of limbic friction, which mm. is basically you have your limbic system, which is a bit, little bit deeper into your brain. The human brain, the like last bit to evolve was right behind our forehead. The limbic system was in here, which is more mammalian. It's much more impulsive, effectively. Mm. I want this. I'm going to go get it immediately. It's like your inner monkey. Yes, yeah, your inner monkey, effectively. And limbic friction is this concept of being in a moment where you want something and not allowing yourself to have it effectively. So not allowing yourself to get out of the water or not allowing mm. yourself the chocolate bar or to pick up the phone when you really want it. And he talks about 
this idea of trying to find 20 moments per day where you experience limbic friction, which sounds like a lot, does sound but like we a got lot. a lot of addictive <laughs> stuff around us <laughs> where you could basically get through your morning routine and you're like, well, I've done it <laughs> because yeah. there are so many things that yeah. are pulling you in. So I've started trying to utilize, that, utilize this. Like when I'm sitting and I'm working and I think, can't bother with this, let's scroll Instagram. And then I have to like activate limbic friction effectively. And you're just constantly training this resistance molecule, which I think limbic friction is kind of the key to discipline effectively. Mm. I think mm. the more you train that, the better you become at disciplining yourself in all aspects. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and to seek that out and almost like train that habit or train that muscle to get better at it right yeah just observe for that feeling of i want this and can i resist giving it to myself effectively and every time you successfully do it it gets stronger mm. every time you don't it gets weaker and most of the time we've been effectively limbic i don't know freedom <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's a uh, this reminds me of a very <laughs> one of the best meditation experiences i've ever had um, which unfortunately I have never been able to recreate, but I had this one moment where I was doing a meditation. I was, and you know, I'd been doing quite a lot of meditating in that period. And at one point I was, you know, doing my meditation, like sitting, just um, kind of being mindful. And I noticed after probably about 20 minutes or so, I noticed like, okay, I really, I'm getting impatient. I like, I want to do something else. Mm -hmm. And I just started being mindful of the feeling of wanting to stop meditating. And that just gave me the most amazing meditation where I was just, I, I was just sitting there in, in kind of bliss almost by just saying, yes, this is what I'm going to be, you know, focusing my attention on, on this wanting to stop meditating. Um, and unfortunately it only happened once, <laughs> but it seems like the same thing, right? You have the limbic friction where part of you is like, Hey, let's get up and get some food or something. And you, you go, no, let's just, let's just experience that instead of giving into it right away. Definitely. And that's that part of us that can inhibit behavior is the reason we're humans and we're living in this giant right. tech world. Like that's the most significant part is we basically developed the inhibition function where we could stop ourselves doing things and make like wiser mm. decisions effectively so our brain loves doing that because right. it's like what built us and it what it's what led us here so the more you can align with it and train that you begin to feel good with the discipline effectively you see people like martial artists and people that are hyper disciplined with their work and stuff often living in quite mentally healthy states and mm. i think the opposite of discipline where you're just all over the show and everything's coming at you is often the people that are in the lowest states. So yeah. I think it's a, a fantastic mechanism to train. So it's, and I think that this is a theme that goes throughout everything you've been talking about is that really, I think it's easy to almost fall into the frame of, oh my God, there's all this stuff I have to stop doing, right? It's like, yeah, I can't yeah. have the nice things. Here's a neuroscientist telling me don't have them. Nice <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I love all the nice but, things too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think it's important, right? It's important to also pay attention to the other side of this whole conversation, which is that you're always coming back to, this is what your body actually wants. This is what actually feels good. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like there's, okay, there's a little resistance, but on the other side of that resistance is the thing you want, right? It yeah. actually feels better. This makes your life better. So it's not that you're going around like wagging your finger going, oh, you shouldn't do these things. It's more like, no, hey, you're currently not feeling good. Here's why. If you can get over this hump on the other side, you actually feel really good. Definitely. And I think whenever you're trying to reduce down this stuff, because 
the reason I talk about all this stuff is because I love it all. Yeah. <laughs> I've been into every addictive behavior you can basically be into. I think my mind is just predisposed in that direction and have gone through the process of trying to, to get myself into a different world, basically. Mm. And if you just take something away, then something is missing. So if you just take away scrolling social media in the evening or eating your, like your burger and chips and your Ben and Jerry's or your porn or whatever it may be. If you just take it away, then you're sitting in a state of like emptiness where something is not satisfied at all. At least the other one was scratching some kind of itch. Yeah. So I always think whatever you're taking away, it has to be replaced with something that does satisfy in that moment. So if in the evenings it's two hours of scrolling Instagram stories, it needs to be replaced with actually think I'm going to prioritize like creating a social experience for myself this evening and go to like a breathwork thing like with you or whatever it may be, any kind of social experience someone may like or unhealthy food needs to be replaced with really nice tasting healthy food. Yeah. So anything you take away, just if you begin to get good at replacing it with joy, like I help a lot of people try and stop vaping, for example, vaping is like a really big challenge. And whenever that experience of withdrawal comes, I really need the vape, I need the vape, rather than just putting it there and thinking, oh, I'm not going to have it, which is so hard to resist. In that moment, you have to create a positive experience in the withdrawal. So whatever someone particularly enjoys, like they love stepping outside in the garden, in the garden or reading a few pages of a book or drinking a cup of tea or putting some music on, in the withdrawal moment, create a positive experience because then mm. you begin to reframe mm. what the mm. withdrawal is actually like. Yeah. And you're you're looking for like this slow food kind of equivalent, right? If we if we think about like junk food versus slow food, right? Instead of having the candy bar immediately, it's like, okay, what's a really healthy whatever salad that doesn't feel like a punishment, right? But it's actually, yeah, I'm actually preparing some food, which also I think, you know, preparing food and then eating it is like this slower burn experience, right? Instead Definitely. of just immediately shoving something in your face. And it can be very satisfying. Mm -hmm. uh, instead of it being a chore, instead of feeling like, oh, I have to do a thing. It's like, no, actually there's satisfaction in making food and then eating it. Um, but like you say, it has to feel, uh, it has to feel like you're not just depriving yourself of what you really want. Definitely. And the cooking is a classic example of that dopamine concept where you're just earning the experience of reward. And yeah, yeah. even like when I have got like Uber Eats and stuff like that, like I'm not even, I'm not particularly a fan of food delivery into my door for some reason. I just don't enjoy it that much. And even when it's healthy food, I, I just do it less of like a satisfaction accomplishment totally, experience yeah. of it, even though it's not bad for you. Yeah. But I think the whole process of cutting the stuff up on the chopping board and washing the dishes and all these things, food is something that was the most effort out of all this stuff. To get oh, hold yeah, of yeah. food was a night to grow it and in the weather and it was yeah. so we, much We would have work. spent most of our time and energy on that at some point, right? Yeah, and it's just making it just like a really short blip in your day is not good. Like when you look at a lot of the different religious practices, people that follow a lot of these. And I think there's a lot in religion that is sad that we're losing it because I think much of religion was fantastic for the mind. And I've never even followed a religious practice myself, but when I observe the different things they do, I think that's a very good characteristic. One of them is the relationship with food and how it's like a, a big social experience. Like I was yeah. reading a paper about... Dutch children are currently the happiest children in the world, okay. apparently, as of 2022. And one of the core factors in that was they have the highest rates of parents eating breakfast with their children. 
every day. Wow. Because it's a social experience. I can imagine it's probably no phones and all of these different things. And it's like they've made an experience out of food. Maybe the kids have to do some of the prep, these kind of things. Mm. Food is, for example, like a, a big factor in this. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think also the social factor, you know, that's also something I noticed. So I I, pre I, prefer, I prefer and I've cultivated the habit of, of mostly making my own food. But also I noticed that I I prefer making food with and for other people mm. versus just for myself, like by orders of magnitude. And really that kind of makes sense. I mean, why would you make food just for yourself? Like that would have never happened probably, <laughs> no, right? You're you wouldn't have been very popular. Right, yeah. It's <laughs> like you, you would be, like the way we evolved, you would be living in a tribe. You probably never make food just for yourself. You'd mm. be, it would be a communal activity of making the food and then sharing the food. And it kind of taps into multiple of these things because you, on the, on the one hand, you have like this dopamine thing, right? You, you have the satisfaction of doing the work to create the thing. Plus you have the oxytocin thing of sharing with others. Yeah. And yeah, it's like, <laughs> it seems so simple, but it's just like, hey, make food and share it with other people. Um, but you have to you have to do the work to make that happen because it's no longer a normal thing, right? No. So it's now you have to get, you have to somehow, yeah. This isn't just going to happen to you most likely. So yeah. you have to make some effort to make this happen. Definitely, and I think it just needs to be very clear to people what these things are. So. Mm. People in their busy lives just know what kind of formula to be following. And mm. that concept of giving is really like one of the biggest functions of this oxytocin. It just, just like how the mom is giving birth and then giving the milk and all of these different things, that's what it's there to do. And the experience of giving love outwardly is so fantastic. And when you said you wouldn't necessarily cook and just eat for yourself as a tribe, it just made me think you probably wouldn't do anything just for right. yourself everything you did probably was with the collective in mind and how we're all going to survive because we're just True, not a solitude yeah. species. And I think so much of our life is and not in like a, a bad way, like people are doing things wrong, but it's just very self-focused. And it's yeah. just like, what am I doing? What am I doing? And the more you get yourself into environments where you feel like you are supporting other people, I just think the better you begin to feel. Mm. I don't know. Have you ever watched Friends? Are you a Friends TV oh, watcher? Oh, ages and ages ago. I, I did see some, yeah. So there's this episode. This is quite specific. Some people may <laughs> get it. But there's uh, an episode where Joey says to Phoebe that there's no such thing as a selfless good deed. Right. And Phoebe has to go about trying to figure out, can I do something for someone else and not feel good myself? Because mm. Joey's saying all, all acts are inna innately selfish. Mm. So Phoebe says no chance. She's supposed to be the character that's quite loving and vegan and all these kind of things. And uh, she goes about raking people's gardens without them knowing and doing all these different activities in the episode and ultimately concludes she can't do anything for other people without feeling good herself. And that's what this oxytocin is. Like mm. this thing that, created us just made sure that it felt really good to contribute so that we'd contribute so the group keeps alive effectively. yeah yeah that makes total sense actually yeah. <laughs> it it's pretty logical sense. um yeah. so it, putting yourself in environments where you support people is uh, a big thing yeah so i'd be i'd be interested to know you've mentioned a couple of things like the phone fasting um i'd be curious to know are there any other things any other practices any other habits that you have incorporated in your life because of the knowledge you have and the work you do on this on this topic of mental health yeah there's definitely some that are like big big staples morning sunlight 
absolutely vital for me. I think you have to, a lot of us work from home now and things like that. Yeah, you, you, Your brain and eyes just like require it. It's not really much of a decision. So even if it's five or 10 minutes of waking up, stepping outside for a period of time, walking around the town, whatever it may be, morning sunlight's very key. Always the cold water showers. I always have my normal mm. shower and turn it cold at the end. And at, at this point, like I still haven't seen the phone. So I've had this morning light, mm. done a bit of gratitude work when I'm on the walk. I do a bit of like asking myself, what am I happy about that I'm getting to experience in my life at the moment, which is really, really important for me in my mind. I find that you can begin to focus on what isn't right yeah. a lot of the time and what you don't have. So I do a bit of gratitude work on the walk, come home, do the cold shower is a big thing. When I'm working, getting super kind of organized and disciplined with work has been really important to me because a big component of this dopamine system is organization and the experience, for example, of washing dishes or cleaning your kitchen or your bathroom or your bedroom, whatever it may be, is something we don't crave to do. But when we do it, often it makes us feel quite satisfied. And you can imagine with the whole hunter-gatherer experience, a hunter-gatherer that prioritizes a clean, organized environment would, of course, survive mm. in a better way. So in terms of a practice, getting super organized, how I operate my workflow and my tasks is something that kind of came out of this and it makes me feel a lot better in my head. Fasting is something I do, the food fasting. I don't eat breakfast, um, which I don't think is essential. Just like I said earlier, I think experimentation is good. And mm. for me, feeling like I've earned that first meal through work and a bit of movement and these kind of things is really, really powerful. Mm. Um, I would say those are the big ones. And then some things have knocked out would be knocked out the porn, which was really tricky. I watched porn from like, I don't know, 12 years old or something when I got hold of a laptop mm. and 10 years of porn. So I knocked out the porn and reduced down the alcohol. So th those yeah. things I'd say are big factors. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I mean, it is like trying to bring in a couple of these caveman elements, right? A couple of these hunter-gatherer elements into your, into your daily life. Yeah, yeah. I think th I think that's really good. Now, um, yeah, another thing. I mean, you know, we, we've talked about porn. It's definitely actually. I wonder about that. You know, I feel like when I was younger, it was mainly a male issue, mainly mm -hmm. you know, like boys and men issue whereas i wonder if that's changed right if, if it's become more of a like every, everybody's hooked on some form of it i'm not sure i do think it's increased a lot um i do get lots of women messaging me about the porn videos if i ever make a video on that topic mm. so i do think women are watching porn i think masturbation affects men and women in a different way i think the act of releasing as a man releases depletes us of a resource that I think we really need, whereas the women don't necessarily like have anything leave them. So right. <laughs> I actually think it's that resource. I mean, that stuff can create a human. That's some powerful stuff. And I think getting yeah. rid of it all the time kills your like driving energy inside of you. Interesting. Yeah. That effectively wants to get that into a human so that you yeah. can operate. So yeah, I think the porn definitely goes across both genders. I think it's probably having a slightly more harmful effect on the male mind. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's I, I think that's also something um, where I see it's definitely a huge problem, right? It's a huge addiction factor, and I think it's also a problem of a slippery slope. Where <clears throat> I saw this this graph um, that shows a problem in general on social media platforms is that if you look at if you essentially think about you know what is allowed within the guidelines of what you're allowed to post on a platform, the 
the closer you get to the limit of what's allowed, the higher engagement tends to spike, right? Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, <laughs> you're not so allowed true. to post porn on TikTok, presumably. But the closer you get to porn, <laughs> yeah, the better the views. That is yeah. actually so true. I think it yeah breeds yeah. extreme. Yeah, yeah, and and I think because of that, it creates like this slippery slope effect, right? Where mm. you can set out to be like, oh, I'm just scrolling through social, but then you're seeing this sexualized stuff, mm -hmm. and that makes you then switch over to Pornhub or whatever. Definitely. Um, so so that that can be like a problem, and. But then there's also the counter to that, which is the whole like NoFap movement, mm -hmm. which I think is generally positive, but I feel like it also, it's kind of taken too far. Yeah, I would agree. Um, where, yeah, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this because one of the things that I feel is, is like dangerous is to take this and add essentially even more shame and more pressure on top of it. Right? To, mm. to basically say like it's already an activity that you're probably ashamed of right so it's like you're masturbating to porn and afterwards you probably feel bad about yourself and you feel like oh, i shouldn't do this and then you say okay i'm, I'm gonna not do it i'm gonna stop watching porn i'm gonna stop masturbating and it almost like piles on shame so much oh, if you do this you're not a real man mm -hmm. and if you you know you have to reach your 90 days of uh, basically not <laughs> is that what it is <laughs> <It's> a long time <laughs> whatever right <laughs> and it's like you have to reach that milestone and every time you fall back it's like this huge failure and yeah okay i wonder if that doesn't even make it worse right because it's like i wonder how much of it is like you're seeking some kind of a relief and the, the negative emotions that build up make you seek that relief, right? And if you add even more shame and more pressure, it, you're just adding to that mm -hmm. negative charge that makes you then want to use porn, right? Yeah. But yeah, I would be wondering, I'd be curious to hear what your perspective on this is. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I understand the motive of the no fap thing, and because in general it's mass fap effectively yeah. as a society. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> Reducing it down is definitely valuable. I can't imagine the hunter-gatherers were running around doing that that often. I think they probably had more important things to prioritize. Yeah. So I think reducing it is very significant. I'm very observant of my own mental health, as you can imagine. So I'm just very interested in what affects it, what helps it. And I know going periods of time, five to seven days without any masturbation is very good for my head. Mm. But I also know that it's an urge the body has and... Don't, it doesn't always need to be sex and inevitably it's probably not always going to be sex for the mass. So I think it's much more about it not being connected with porn than mm. if it's... Because in the period of trying to stop watching porn, I would go through prolonged periods of not watching it and I still masturbate when watch porn and then sometimes I'd be like, oh, I really don't watch some porn, so I'd watch some porn and then it would always be in the next day I'd al I always observe like my drive and these kind of things. And it'd only be the porn that would be the days I'd feel really bad. It wouldn't just be the days that I masturbated. So I think an initial period where you do nothing for five to seven days would be great. And you just mm. will experience a surge in energy because you'll be like, wow, I don't know we do this. And I just, it, it changes you hormonally. Mm. And then after that, beginning to get used to just like a lesser free less frequent dose. And then also beginning to utilize the imagination a lot more. And just as we've talked about with everything, earning reward actually leads to us feeling our best. And using your imagination is effort, imagining some hot girl or guy, whatever you want to do in your mind. But the process of doing it leads to a much more satisfying experience ultimately. So what you're seeking to do in the masturbation actually is better. 
Right, right. So I think beginning to go in that direction is the best way to go. Yeah, I mean, because my experience was the same as well. I, I, I um, discovered porn when I was pretty young, probably also around 12, 13, something like that. And, and I definitely overused for quite a long time. But also I had lots and lots of like shame and guilt associated with sex in general. Mm -hmm. And and for me, I just noticed that I had to, or on the one hand, yes, definitely quitting the porn habit is, it's definitely healthy, right? There's no doubt about it. Um, but for me, I also had to go through the process of like, learning a um, kind of a shame-free relationship with my own sexuality. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I could have done that entirely in the absence of masturbation, right? Yeah, I, interesting, I mean, okay. Because also, like, I'm, I'm not like a player, right? It's not like I'm <laughs> constantly, you know, uh, it, it's not like I, I, I went through long periods of my in, in my life where I basically didn't have access, you know, I didn't have a girlfriend, didn't have mm -hmm. sexual partners. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if I could have, like, resolved a lot of this stuff that, I don't know, this emotional baggage around sex by completely abstaining from everything. Yeah, interesting. I do think it's a natural behavior and I think it can be done in like a good way, like where you are connecting with yourself yeah. in a way that's good. And I think the shame thing is really significant because shame isn't a nice emotion. And one thing I definitely don't think anyone should feel any shame for is the fact you've been watching loads of porn because... Yeah. It is just so deeply desired, that concept. It's so irresistible porn that I would have no judgment of yourself for watching any of it because, yeah, like, yeah. what human wouldn't, really, when it's uh, when it's an opportunity thing? It's free, it's fast to find, yeah, all yeah. of that sort of stuff. So I wouldn't say there's any judgment there. I think sometimes the shame comes in because progressively the tolerance grows like it does with any addictive behavior and you have to begin to watch more and more hectic things effectively mm. and i think the body and mind begins to think oh, i don't know if i really want to be observing those kind of things taking place but i wouldn't feel shame in the porn i just feel like recognition for yourself of recognizing the problem and thinking yeah i think this is a bit of a problem i think it might not be making me feel that good and just beginning to experiment with windows off it see how you feel and then begin to drive yourself forward with the great feeling that's taking place rather than pushing yourself away with it with yeah. the withdrawal with, with the shame feeling yeah 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 and i think that's also where you can you can see that porn and i, I totally agree right it's like hey it's it's just one of these influences that hooks you and it's so easy to get hooked on sugar it's so easy to get hooked on alcohol it's easy to get hooked on porn it's easy to get hooked on social media right it's like it's not yeah it's, it's not like a weakness of character it's just likely to happen and the question is what do you do with it now so mm -hmm. I, I like that you mentioned that i think that's important um but yeah you can see that it's like it becomes habit forming you can end up spending hours a day on it where it's like well you wouldn't be doing that if it weren't this this weird if it's not hijacking something inside of you right mm -hmm. it's like it's like nobody masturbates for 5 hours a day without <laughs> without <laughs> this kind of stimulation but with it, that happens, right? People can become completely addicted to it. So again, I think there's an important distinction needs to be made between the habit of watching porn, the addiction of that versus the habit of masturbation, which uh, can be unproblematic. But yeah, again, it's like obviously also context dependent, all that. But, you know, I think that what we could do, because uh, before we recorded the podcast, we were talking and I know that men's mental health Mm -hmm. it's something that's important to you it's also important to me and yeah this this kind of porn addiction is probably a largely or it's something that affects men especially young men right mm -hmm. 
I think this is something we could explore, like everything around men's mental health is something we could explore in another conversation because, uh, yeah, we're going on for more than an hour. Yeah, I'm good with that, man. <laughs> covered loads, but also there's loads more to talk about. So I'd be interested to hear, first of all, from the listeners, if they have any questions and so on, right? We can maybe pick up some of these threads in a future conversation. Yeah. But also maybe let's have another conversation about men's mental health. I'd love see it. see where we go. So with that, thank you very much, TJ. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I'm sure the Ikaria audience is going to absolutely love what you shared today. Thanks, Shane. I've loved it. Awesome questions. And uh, yeah, I hope you've all enjoyed. <laughs>